Beautiful. Thank you, Jim. I so appreciate it. So, uh, Pete, I'm going to go to you and just start off. If you were to um, tell the people, how did we first meet? and what, What's your first remembrance of, of someone like me, a 19-year-old punk? Be honest. Well, I just saw a 19-year-old punk. <laughs> um, no, you know what, Les? Uh, we had a lot of ball players from all over the country, and um, and we had some pretty good ball players. But uh, as a 19-year-old punk, you really stood out. And uh, well, we were six weeks on that trip, and we went through all kinds of uh, stuff. I think everybody on the team down there we couldn't drink the water, and we must have gotten into it somehow and got Montezuma's revenge. And I watched you throughout the whole thing, and I just saw not only that you're a great athlete, but you love Jesus, and uh, you were mature for a 19-year-old guy. Um, so that was in 1975. In 1976, I had no idea in 75 when we met that I'd be moving to California, uh, Southern Cal, that next year. And uh, we hooked up. You were living in Redondo Beach at the time, as I recall. And um, so we hooked up a little bit then. And then next thing I know, it had been probably several years. And I found out you had moved to Bakersfield. And we used to run into each other at Hume Lake. And uh, I know you would always have guys that you were scholarshipping at, at uh, Hume Lake every time I'd see you and your employees and building into their lives. It's just who you are. And that's why God's blessed. Uh, one of the big reasons God is blessed, you know, speed of the leader, speed of the team. And so when I look at it around at churches and ministries that have men's groups, and not many of them do, um, I know if something good's happening, they've got good leadership. Because you don't do anything with men without good leadership. And um, so, Les, you've given them that leadership. And just like Gary said a few minutes ago, my life mission statement is you come up next to a guy and fan his flame in Christ and then choke in his dust. And I've been choking in your dust for 15 years now, and I'm enjoying it every, every year it goes by, just watching what God's doing up there. I tell people around the country when I'm talking about men's ministries that they have to come to Bakersfield and see what God's doing here because you've had a men's revival going on here for 15 years. And uh, you have more maturity and uh, more godly men, or what we call men of God, uh, in Bakersfield than I've ever seen in one place, certainly in one city. Um, so I'm real proud of you, Les. And uh, there's some people that I shudder when they say I'm their mentor, but not you. Mm. I love you, brother. Now tell us about Rocky. How'd you meet Rocky? How'd you get plugged into this whole thing called Influencers? Well, that's that's a great story. Um, Rocky and I met in the summer uh, in between our sophomore and junior years. I was playing baseball at Auburn and he was playing at Ole Miss. They put an all-star team together with a bunch of guys off some SEC teams. And uh, for to go up to Johnstown, Pennsylvania and play in a national tournament up there for 19-year-olds. 
So we met that summer and played together and went to Johnstown. And then he came, we came back and he played football and, and baseball at uh, Ole Miss. And I played uh, at Auburn. The next summer he came out again and we played some semi-pro ball together and played on the same team. And Rocky was a in baseball, he was a Mickey Mantle. I mean, he had everything. I'm not sure he had hit 300 every year like Mantle did, but as far as power and speed and arm, uh, matter of fact, the Yankees tried to sign him out of high school, and he wanted to go to Ole Miss and play uh, play football. But uh, just as the years went on, uh, he married Sally, and I married Susan. And Susan and Sally became closer than any two sisters can be, and uh, so they developed a great relationship. And so we had a lot of fun with him through the years, and uh, to the point where, when our youngest son was born, I named him Patrick Fleming McKenzie. When Joanna was born to Rocky, he named her Joanna McKenzie Fleming. I tried to get them hooked up, but their names would have messed up. Uh, he had a married way up getting Joanna. Um, but uh, so I was on, I, I moved to California on staff with the Navigators, and um, we field tested a two called the Colossians 2 7 series where the NAS put all of their discipleship material together in one package and offered it to churches. So we were doing that and working with churches. And Rocky was a natural discipler and leader. And so I went down to Mississippi where Rocky was living and graduated and played a little pro ball in the Canadian League and was back in the insurance business in uh, Biloxi or Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Anyway, I showed Rocky the 2-7, and he took it and uh, just absolutely revolutionized the uh, First Baptist Church in uh, Biloxi um, he, to the point where he threatened the pastor, not uh, with a knife or anything, but the pastor was threatened by him, I should say. Um, and so over the years, we, Rocky and I talked a lot about discipling men and discipleship and we noticed, and Rocky was the first one to point this out to me. He said, you know, Pete, when uh, when men are in Bible study, they might read the books that you're reading or the chapter in the book that week or fill in the blanks in the Bible study or whatever. But when that study's over, they don't do anything. They aren't self-feeders. So um, that's when Rocky began to pray. And most of you maybe have heard that story, but that's when Rocky began to pray and God gave him the journey. and. Um, so we were we asked Rocky to come out and speak to one of our men's retreats um, when he had just finished a journey and putting it together. And he brought three of his guys from Mississippi, I mean, some Arkansas out. And um, they, before each of his talks, they'd get up and give a five-minute testimony. And they had been through the journey, and they, every one of them said after they got to their five minutes, they said, my life has changed, is changed and I'll never be the same again. And the next guy got up and said that, and the next guy, now Thad Montgomery, who some of you heard pray, went over to Rocky and um, said, hey, what is this, this journey thing? So long story short, um, we took 11 guys back to um, Arkansas, back to Rogers, and um, Rocky uh, did the first training for the uh, journey. And um, so we went back home and started, I think out of those 11 guys, we started five groups uh, with co-guides. And uh, that's where we got rooted and started. And then 
Rocky called me later and uh, a few months later and said, um, you know, these guys in Arkansas have been so changed by the journey. They want me to do it full time. And I want you to help me. And so um, I was really heady and ready to help him. I couldn't believe we were going to get to be in the ministry together like that after all those years. Uh, but we have been and are and just love. Uh, we got a best friend relationship uh, for the last 55 years. Um, and so it's one of the great joys of my life to have known and be a, a part of Rocky and just to be under his leadership now and watch his his maturity and his wisdom and how he listens and God speaks through him amazingly. It's been a, a joy to see. Pete, I would ask you, you know, I've been around the two of you enough to know that Rocky razzes you pretty hard. So you got the mic right now. Can you tell us a funny story about Rocky that we'd all uh, laugh at and get some humor no, out of? I think hey, I'm hey before you do, I want you to know I'm on. <laughs> 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 Rocky's own well, you know, I was going to say, Rocky, all the funny stories are on me. Um, <laughs> so, Pete, I, I want to move to uh, you going to Auburn. What made you go to Auburn? I heard at one time you were going somewhere in Florida. Uh, but what, what made you go to Auburn? Well, that was the Lord was all over that one. I we had four guys off our high school baseball team. We had a pretty good team my senior year in, in high school, and uh, we had four guys off that team that got scholarships to Florida State. And Florida State was the big baseball school, and so that's why we were all going. We had been down there on a spring training uh, trip and met the coach and all that. And uh, so I was set to go to Florida State. Meanwhile, I had met Susan, started dating her after first of the year that year in 63. Um, she was a junior uh, in high school and I was a senior. And I knew she was going to Auburn the, the uh, next year because her dad was Auburn alumni. And uh, so I was going to Florida State and I was head over heels in love with her. And um, I was at her house about two weeks before I was going to leave to go to Florida State. and. Um, I had already talked with Coach Nix. He had offered me a scholarship to come to Auburn. And um, so I um, was over at Susan's house one night, and the, my mother called over there and said, you need to come home. I said, why is that? She said, well, the pastor's here, and he won't speak to you. And nothing good goes through your head at that point. Um, I had no idea why the pastor of the church would come to my house to talk to me. But when I got home, he began to tell me and my parents that there was an anonymous person that came to uh, him, wanted him to come to us and tell, tell us that he wanted to pay uh, my tuition to college for four years with a stipulation of two stipulations. One, that I make passing grades and two, that I go to uh, college in Alabama, preferably Auburn. So getting that kind of offer and knowing Susan was going to go to Auburn the next year and feeling like I probably wouldn't hold on to her if I had a long-distance relationship, I changed my mind and went to Auburn. We beat, by the way, Florida State 13-5 to in the regionals my senior year. Of course, that may have been different if I was playing for Florida State. <laughs> so pete i would ask you i understand there was another man involved that had something to do with this relationship and maybe she was going to have to choose between you and this other guy what was his name 
Armando. 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 When uh, we went to College World Series in 67, and when I got back from uh, Omaha, I found I was drafted by the Tigers and signed a contract with them and went up to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, in the Eastern Carolina League in their A-ball. Susan and her family were making a trip to Acapulco, Mexico, and back camping. And um, so while she was uh, down there, they on their way home, they stopped in the campground across from these apartments that a lot of University of Mexico students were in. And she met a guy named Armando. And um, Armando um, wined and dined her and... Um, tore the throne off of roses, serenaded her. Um, they got a pretty strong infatuation going. Well, meanwhile, I was up in Rocky Mount, and um, I was I had been baptized when I was eight years old, but uh, I couldn't figure out how to be a Christian. Couldn't I, I, I was a works-based guy, and I knew that if I was getting in heaven on works, I was gone. And I, could, I really wanted to live the Christian life. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. What do you do with sin? So um, we got rained out one night in Rocky Mount, and um, me and a couple other guys off the team went over to a local mall. We walked into a bookstore, and um, I noticed uh, one of the pictures uh, that I'd gone over there with picked up a book, and I looked at it, and it's a Bobby Richardson story. And um, I knew Bobby played for the Yankees, but I also knew he was a Christian, and so I decided I'd read his book and find out how you do that. How do you be a ball player and a Christian? So I read his book, and he met a guy in uh, the Yankee organization while he was in the minors, and the guy had a reputation. They nicknamed him Billy Graham because he was, as Bobby said, an unashamed Christian. And um, so as I read through there, and Bobby was telling about meeting this guy, he said, for the first time in my life, I began to realize that I could be a professional baseball player and an uncompromising Christian at the same time. And, uh, man, that just knocked me over. I just said, that's exactly my problem. Compromise is my lifestyle. That's my motto. I can't get away from it. And then, then I prayed a sinner's prayer that night. I said, God, um, I can't keep the rules. I'm a terrible Christian. But I, I, and I know I'm not the man you created me to be, but I want to be. Would you make me that man? And that night I came to Christ. I can't explain it. I don't understand it all, but I came to Christ. I came to know him. And, uh, and I automatically knew that I was going to heaven, that I'd been forgiven for every sin I ever committed. Um, I started reading my Bible, and it started making sense for the first time in my life. Sunday became my favorite day of the week. I mean, I got a radical change. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. So I had that new creature going for me. Meanwhile, Susan is supposed to come and see me when she got home uh, from Mexico, and she didn't want to come because she didn't want to tell me about Armando. We'd been dating for four years at the time since high school, and we both had two quarters left. But, you know, I've been a wild man in college. I've been partying. I was in a fraternity and uh, living in the athletic dorm and, you know, doing a lot of stuff when you're in high school. At that point, I never thought I'd start doing, but I was enjoying it. And uh, so she was a Southern belle, and she went by the numbers and liked to keep the rules. She broke up with me about four times in college because I was making such a fool out of myself at parties. And um, so she had room in her heart for another guy uh, by the way I was living with her. 
And um, that's the way I see it anyway. And so she, she, mom and dad talked her into coming. She was coming with them. And so she came up and um, she, the first, we had a ball game that night. We went out after the game and we had to get caught up. And um, she started telling me, I could tell someone right. She started telling me about Armando. Um, and um, so by that time, she was waiting on me to get angry and probably do a little cussing and, and not respond real well, but I, I wasn't, I didn't do it. She's, I thought I'd get angry and, and I didn't. She thought I'd be maybe using profanity and stuff and I didn't do that. And she didn't know what had happened to Pete McKenzie. And uh, so she was very upset. Then she told me that um, he was gonna come up that school year and, and spend a week uh, with her. And she was gonna go down the next summer to the Olympics in Mexico City and see him. and. They had all these plans, and so we went out the second night, and she was really upset and didn't know what was going on, but she liked the, the new Pete. And um, so she just out of the blue just said, uh, I don't want, she said, I don't want to go home. I want to stay up here with you. I said, I don't think that's going to happen. And um, then she said, well, why don't we just get married? And I said, I don't know. Let me pray about that, okay? And we got married five weeks later. Good story. She's a beautiful woman. So I want you just to give all of us an idea. You've shared a little bit about her. And and we know over the last couple of years that you've been going through a lot of difficult situations that God has brought you through. Um, and a lot of us are looking at today as uh, going through the COVID situation here and being difficult. But I wanted to just parallel i mean what what you've been through pete uh having lost your your spouse of 50 years um has been just an inspiration to many 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 of us and so i wanted to talk about that uh, you to, to share with us your heart and how god has brought you through all that what he's talked to you about because many of us i, I heard elias pray he says he has a kindred spirit with you why because the same thing happened with him and so share with us, as men and women on this call, uh, what we can learn from Pete McKenzie through the last two years of what's happened with you. Well, you know, um, it, we're all on a journey. I mean, a journey uh, to maturity in Christ. And it's a long, lifelong process. And the, and the re reason that influencers and Rocky came up with this John 15, 5 ministry is because um, abiding in Christ is where the fruit is, spending time in God's presence and all the ways that we do that and why journaling is so important. I know men really struggle with journaling. When I was with the Navigators, men struggle with scripture memory. And now with the journey, men struggle with journaling, but it's a wonderful form of prayer. And uh, I saw Rocky journaling back in the days when we were young before we even had uh, kids. Uh, so he, he was journaling years before I ever started journaling, but I've been journaling the last 30 years. Um, and so, you know, it, it's sin is very complicated and we live in a fallen, sinful world. And Jesus Christ makes life simple. Trust me. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me. 
And I say it's simple. You know, it's very difficult because Jesus won't lower his standard for who gets to follow him and be his disciple and who gets saved and who doesn't. Because if you profess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And um, so you have to surrender something to make that move. And so there is a dying to yourself. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross every day and follow me. If anyone doesn't drink their, this, my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. If you don't hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sister. Now, all these things, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't give away all, all that you got and give it to the poor people, you can't be my disciple. And he's never stuttered in that and he's never compromised. So to come to know Christ, we have to abide in him. And we, he said we would bear much fruit. So that means I heard a Campus Crusade guy shortly after I'd come to Christ in the offseason speaking at our church. And he said, first thing he said out of his mouth is, we're excited about Jesus Christ. And uh, I never heard anybody say that before. And I'd grown up in that church. I never heard one person. I heard them say they're excited about the pastor and the children's ministry and the worship leader. But I never heard anybody say they were excited about Christ. And then I realized I'm excited about Christ. So he and I became really good friends. And I went through some of the campus crusade stuff with him as a young guy, young Christian. But the, my journey has taken me deeper and deeper. The more you spend time in his presence, the more he invites you out into deep water, what I call deep water Christianity. And... Um, we, God began to teach me and Susan about this um, in 1970, I believe it was 78. She was pregnant with our second child. We had a five-year-old at the time. And um, she developed complications in, in labor. And the doctor told me I needed to leave and get go in the father's uh, waiting room. And they would prepare her for emergency C-section because she was losing a lot of blood. So I went into the closet in the father's waiting room and uh, got on my knees. And I just started praying. I just said, God, I just pray Susan will be okay and the baby be okay and Susan will be okay and the baby will be okay. And I was in there about five, ten minutes, and I got out and I was pacing back and forth, praying the same thing. And finally I stopped and said, God, I'm sorry. That's all I got. I don't have any other big prayers. And he said, Pete, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, how much control do you have over what's going on in there with Susan and the baby? I said, God, I got no control. You have all control. That's the reason I'm begging you that they'll be okay. And he says, let me ask you another question then. If I'm in control and you're not, would you purpose in your heart to praise me no matter what happens to Susan and the baby? And I really had to stop and think at that point. And this is where my concept of God came into play. Can I really trust God with everything in my life? He asked me to put my faith in him, and faith is the substance of things not seen. So there's, it's a risk, not on his part, but on our part, when we trust God. And can I trust him with the most important things in my life, my wife and my son, my unborn son? Can I trust him? Is he sovereign and in charge and all-powerful? And um, so I went over my litany of things about the, my concept of who God is, and I finally came to the conclusion, and I said, you know, I believe that is who he says he is. I believe he's all that. He's erased all my sin. He's forgiven it. He's accepted me the way I am. Even while I was sinner, a sinner, he died for me. He gives me grace, power, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, he is who he says he is. So, so I came to the conclusion I better 
answer his question. I said, God, I purpose in my heart that um, I'm going to praise you no matter what happens with Susan and the baby. Because I knew that that meant if they died, I was going to have to praise him just like I would if they both lived. Doctor came out 30 minutes later and said, Mr. McKenzie, I'm sorry, but we lost your baby somewhere between the labor room and the delivery room. And um, so I, I was amazed at the peace I had at that point. I was amazed at the, um, the peace that passes all understanding and counted all joy when you go through various trials. I wasn't feeling a lot of joy, but I wasn't feeling a lot of anger or discouragement either. And uh, I got to see that little guy. He was—he died somewhere between the labor room and delivery room. Susan had developed some complications uh, during labor, and they couldn't get the baby enough blood and oxygen, something like that. And um, so, you know, we're sitting down that afternoon in her hospital room, and um, she looks at me and she says, you know, Pete, I don't think God took our baby because he's disciplining us or correcting something in us. Um, I said, I don't either. I think he's doing something very different. And um, so she brought some books to the hospital with her. And one of them was Come Away, My Beloved, which is a devotional book. And um, it's written in the first person by Francis Roberts. And so I was thumbing through there and I came across a um, devotional called Comfort and Affliction. And so it was like, I read it and I read it to her and it was like Jesus came in to this young couple who had just lost their baby and he did, made a pastoral visit. And this is what he said. He said, oh, my people, has not my hand performed for you with many signs and wonders? Have I not provided for you and ministered to you in miraculous fashion? How will you say, therefore, in your heart that you will turn away from me to your own, own understanding? How often have I promised you and never failed to keep my word? Will you not then trust me now in this new emergency, even as you have trusted me in the past? Your need is deeper this time, and so I've made the testing more acute. I deepen you in the furnace of affliction and purify your soul in the fires of pain. Lean hard upon me, for I will bring you through to new victories, and restoration will follow what seemeth now to be a wind of destruction. Hold fast to my hand. Rest in my love. For of this you may be very certain. My love is unaltered. Yes, I have you in my own intensive care. My concern for you is deeper now than when things are normal. Draw upon the resources of my grace, and so will you be equipped to communicate peace and confidence to your dear ones. Heaven rejoices when you go through trials with a singing spirit. The Father's heart is cheered when you endure the test and question not his mercy. Be as a beacon light. His own glorious radiance will shine forth through you, and Christ himself will be revealed. You know, I've been in a lot of places in my life where I could reveal Jesus Christ, I could share the gospel, but I don't think there's any better way to share the gospel than the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he proved his love. When Jesus went to the cross, he went in submission and obedience to his Father. He went to save guys like us. And he was saying here, the last thing he said is, be a beacon light. His own glorious radiance will shine forth through you, and Christ himself will be revealed. God was, was calling us, Susan and me, out into deeper water, deeper faith, deeper trust, 
deeper surrender, deeper submission. You'll always do that. And that's what the journey does. The journey calls us into deeper spiritual water where we can't touch the bottom. We have to trust him to keep us afloat. We have to stay afloat by faith. So God's been working in our, our lives, but our whole life and married life together as a couple. And we just believe that the closer we got to Christ, the closer we'd get to other. And I'm sure Susan would agree with me if she was sitting here today that we had a one flesh relationship and it wasn't because of us. It was because we surrendered to him and asked for one. And I, I can remember one time asking God, I was teaching a marriage class. It was good stuff. I was on my, on my game, but I'm riding home and, and talking to uh, the Lord on the way home. And I said, God, this is good stuff you're giving me to teach in this marriage class. But my problem is I can't live it out. Uh, it's not that I'm a terrible guy. It's just that I'm too lazy. And I'm too distracted with so many things to live it out like loving Susan the way she deserved to be loved. So here's the deal. I'm going to make myself available to you. And you come and love my wife through me. And he did. And he taught me how to love Susan. We didn't even know what love languages there were in those days. That book hadn't been written. Um, but um, so God has prepared, prepared us for just about everything he was going to call us to. and what. Les is referring to in the last few years, two and a half years ago. Well, four or five and a half years ago in 2014, Susan had breast cancer, and it was a small, they got it in first stages, but it was a very aggressive malignant cancer. But the surgeon said they got it all, and they wasn't in any lead nodes that hadn't spread as far as they could tell. So she had radiation, and we got on with our life. Well, it took two years for that uh, microscopic cells from that uh, cancer to metastasize in her brain. And so two years later, um, in December of 16, she started having problems with confusion and, and memory loss. And so I, I'm kind of of the persuasion, I'm not going to worry about anything until I know there's a good reason to worry. And so she we have a son who lives in Glasgow, Scotland. He pastors a church over there, and he's a fitness trainer. And um, She makes an annual trip by herself over there, and I usually go in the summer with her. And um, so she went on her trip, and she called me crying one day, and she just knows their kitchen as well as she knows her own because she does a lot of housework and domestic stuff and cooking for them when she's there. And... Um, so she called me crying because she was confused in the kitchen and didn't know where to find things. And so when she got home, um, that was still going on. And so on Valentine's Day, uh, 2017, we um, went to the, our family doctor and he ordered an MRI. And, and he called us that afternoon and said, come on in. The MRI guy said it'd probably be about a week before we got the results. I knew something was wrong when he called us in that day. And so we, it was too late in the day for us to go. And so um, we went the next day and we were in the waiting in uh, one of the waiting rooms there for him to come in. And so he came in in a few minutes and sat down and didn't make any small talk or anything. Looked Susan right in the eye and said, Susan, you have a brain tumor. And um, so that's three weeks later, she was having brain surgery. And she had a walnut-sized tumor in the, embedded in the middle of her brain. 
which is the last place you want to have one embedded. But God had worked through our friends, Jerry and Holly Leachman, who knew people at MD Anderson Hospital and uh, knew the doctor that was in charge of the whole hospital. Anyway, uh, God made it possible for the best embedded brain tumor surgeon in the world to, to do her surgery. And, um, and it went beautifully. They, he felt like he got most of it. They'd still have to do a gamma knife radiation procedure on her. But, um, but she is so frail in just as who she is as a person, not because of this brain tumor, but she's just frail. And she didn't even hardly like to take aspirin because everything she put in her body would affect her. And they put so many steroids and other things, anesthesia, that for four or five days after the surgery, we're supposed to be in there and out in three days. And most of the patients that were around us were doing that. But Susan developed some real issues and depression, discouragement, and that's the side effects from the steroids and things they were giving her. So we had a tough time and we were actually in 12 days. And when she got out of the hospital, Rocky had come down and Rocky stayed about three or four days. And Susan's best friend, uh, one of her best friends had come down and, so we ended up seven weeks in the hospital. And, and I can remember the um, afternoon after the doctor told us she had a brain tumor. I, that just shocked us. I mean, that was not on our radar. It wasn't anything we even, I, I was thinking dementia or early onset of Alzheimer's or something. And, um, and so as we were praying about it the next few days, God told us two things. First thing he told us was, you know, this is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to you, or it's going to be your finest hour. Now you get to choose. And we prayed about it. We knew right off, well, let's trust God that this would be our finest hour. And that means that we're going to trust him through it. And she never complained about anything, all the stuff she went through. And while we were at MD Anderson, those seven weeks, she developed a blood clot in her, in her lung. And, uh, more lesions, cancer lesions in her lungs, and had gamma knife procedures, and just a lot of stuff going on there. And uh, she never complained once. Um, she wasn't any good at that. Um, and I got the joy of being there with her. Those last six months of our married life were probably the best six months of our married life the most intimate six months. Uh, with a blood clot, she had to give herself shots in the stomach twice a day for blood, some kind of blood thinner. And uh, she just couldn't do it. And so I've, I just said, well, I'll do it. And uh, the most, uh, that may be the most intimate time we had together is when I was giving her two shots a day in her tummy. And probably the way she was looking at me and, and thanking me and honoring me for doing it. And I found a joy in doing it. Um, it was a precious opportunity to do that for her. So um, the other thing he told us, he said, um, now you need to understand this cancer is not about you and Susan. And uh, it sure felt like it was about us. But what he was saying is people are going to be watching you as you go through this. And um, when I was my last year in the minor leagues, I had the worst year that I'd had in five years in the minors. And uh, they played me at shortstop. And I played first base in high school and second base at Auburn and uh, played third base mostly when I came up from A ball to double A, came up to fill in for a third baseman on that team that got injured. And um, so I had a terrible year. Uh, I was playing in my hometown with a ace and uh, 
Birmingham, Alabama. And um, so I wasn't hitting well. And I, my great claim to fame in baseball was helping a lot of pitchers get to the big leagues. And I helped a lot of them that year. Uh, and um, so it, we were in the last game of the season, and uh, we finished up in Memphis. And I um, took – I was over at my locker, and I was cramming some of my uniform and stuff into a bag. One of the pitchers on our team came over to my locker, and he said, Pete, he said, I've been watching you all year, and whatever you got, I need. And I was saying, what in the world have I got that you need? I just had the worst year I ever had. We went to dinner after that, and, and um, uh, the guy came to Christ that night. And what he had been doing is watching me fail and watching how I responded when I failed and how my own pitchers were getting me, get ragging on me. And they had every reason to, quite honestly. Um, but, you know, God began to teach us so many lessons about his, how he works in our life which I call deep water Christianity. It, you know, and news just is news. It's not necessarily good news. Sound like good news, but it's not necessarily good news. And it sounds like bad news. It's not necessarily bad news. God works with good news and bad news. And to mature us and to grow us up, we just have to stick with him and abide and abide and abide. And he does the rest. Uh, that, I couldn't have been more surprised when that guy told me, I've been watching you fail all year. Um, and God was saying to us in this brain tumor, he said, you know, Pete, people are going to be watching you guys. This could be your finest hour, or you could get all upset about it if you want to. And, uh, and he, and I'll, I'll just read this, um, devotional that's been one of my favorite devotionals of Os Oswald Chambers. Um, it's called, you're not your own. Classes. Now, Oswald Chambers is a deep water guy. I don't know if you've read much of his, my most of his highest devotionals, but he doesn't mess around. If you don't want to know about Jesus and you don't want to be committed to the gospel, don't read the Apostle Paul's letters or my most of his highest, because these guys love Jesus and they love the gospel. And, um, and they know that's their purpose in life. You know, Paul goes, you know, my circumstances are working out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's writing to a Philippian church that he had started, and they had sent him some money and food by a young man named Paphroditus. But he said, my circumstances are I could be executed or they may let me go. But regardless of that, my circumstances are working out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then about uh, 10 verses later, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Then a few verses later, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospels. Nine times he used the gospel in that first chapter. So here's what Oswald said, and you're not your own. Noted in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, there is no such thing as a private life a world within a world, for a man or woman who is brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ's sufferings. I like that. Jesus Christ's sufferings. When he, when we're never in deeper fellowship with Jesus than when we're suffering. Matter of fact, I was journaling one day, and, and I was writing down all the maladies, my feet, my back, my this, my that. I was up to about seven or eight, and I was listing them all out there for the Lord to pray about. And he says, oh, you're listing your friends. I said, what do you mean? He says, oh, don't you know what friends are? And I said, well, well, I'm not sure I do based on what you just said. He said, well, friends are anyone or anything that points you to me. 
Now, you're sitting here talking to me and listing your friends. And if you didn't have all these friends, we wouldn't be talking as much as we talk. So those are friends to you. Jesus Christ's sufferings, we get to enter into his sufferings with him, and that's the most intimate fellowship. God breaks up the private life of his saints and makes it a thoroughfare for the world on one hand and for himself on the other. In other words, there is no private life for the Christian. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he said. Now you say you're a Christian and turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Bless those who curse you. Just do it. And if you're abiding in me, it'll be a joy. It won't be a burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the reason that we stress abiding and journaling, the work of the Holy Spirit, being a ministry of, driven by grace and faith and Christ-centered. We're not sanctified for ourselves. We're called into the fellowship of the gospel. And things happen which have nothing to do with us. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm in this brain tumor, God didn't call me and Susan aside and say, hey, I'm thinking about giving you a brain tumor. What do you think? Well, he had, there was no consultation. He had just prepared us beforehand to walk by faith and to trust him. Simple faith. God is getting us into fellowship with himself. Let him have his way. The first thing God does with us is to get us in based on the rugged reality of the gospel until we do not care what happens to us individually as long as he gets his way for the purpose of redemption. Chambers is talking about the same thing that the Apostle Paul talked about. The Apostle Paul said, I don't, it doesn't matter what happens to me as long as God is glorified and the gospel is preached. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Why shouldn't we go through heartbreaks? Through those doorways, God is opening up ways of fellowship with his son. Most of us fall and collapse at the first great grip of pain. But God won't let you. He comes with the grip of the pierced hand of his son and says, enter into fellowship with me. Arise and shine. Guys, we're going through journeys. We're journaling. We're studying the word. We're doing it in fellowship with each other. It's got to change our lights, life and in, in our light that we're shining in the world by living this thing out. Because that's the greatest, I found that the greatest witness there is, is your life. Uh, it's not your eloquence. It's not your giftedness. It's not your bank account. It's not your portfolio. It's, it's uh, the life that you live that makes people hungry and come up to us and say, hey, whatever you got, I need. He comes with the grip of the pierced hand, entering the fellowship with me. And this is what really got me, this last sentence. If through a broken heart, God can bring his purpose to pass in the world, then thank him for breaking your heart. Guys, that's deep water stuff. And right then I had to decide, am I going to thank him for breaking my, my heart with Susan? I wrote a letter to God and went to the beach about a week after she died. And um, I wrote a letter to God, and I just kind of poured my heart out. And then, then I had God write me a letter. God knowing me as well as he knew me and all that he is helping me through at the time, what, it, what would he say in a letter that he was writing to me? So he said, Dear Pete, I know I've broken your heart by taking your love of your life and your best friend home to be in heaven with me. 
He said, but you'll have to trust me that I could accomplish more for the gospel and bringing her home than I could have if I had a supernatural healed her and left her here. That's all I needed to hear. Be as a beacon light. His own glorious radiance will shine forth through you and Christ himself will be revealed. Man, that's what, that's what our life was all about. Christ being revealed and, if he, and the brightest light shines when we're going through suffering and loss and pain and trials. That's the reason James says, count it all joy. So we, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble and we worry and fret a lot about a lot of things that really don't matter in light of eternity. In light of the gospel, they don't matter. Be offended if you want to, but why waste your time? What's it helping? Who wants to be like you? Forgive. Susan has a, about 10 feet from me over here in the kitchen. She has, it's still up there, taped a little thing from Jesus calling. It says, it says, laugh, love, forget, forgive. Never let how someone treats you alter how you treat them. Mm. And then over by the sink, she's got a little plaque. It says, joy is not the absence of pain. It's the presence of God. And she lived by that stuff. She took it serious. You know, behind me over there, you see that little configuration of crosses where there's a chair just to the right of that, left of that. And that was her chair. That's where she sat every, every um, morning, just bright and early. Just spending time with God. I was, I, I'm this or reading through her journals and um, just um, being blessed out of my socks, just seeing what an intercessor she was, how she trusted God. And um, I've been writing a book about all this, and it's called The Tug of Heaven. And the reason it's called The Tug of Heaven is because um, I was reading in her journal when she went through her breast cancer, and she said, I feel the tug of heaven. But if God's not ready for me yet, then that's good because I'll get more time with my children and grandchildren. And um, so I said, that's got to be that Rocky actually told me. I told Rocky about that. Rocky said, Pete, that's got to be your, your title of the book. And, uh, and I knew he was right when he said that. Um, but that's a long-winded answer, Wes, to your, <laughs> to your question. But, um, yeah. Pete, I just want to say thank you. Thanks from all of us who have have been able to listen and see what you've been through and see just how you've claimed Jesus through it all. And I want to wrap up tonight. So, Pete, thank you. Thank you for just sharing such great words of wisdom to all of us and how we can learn from pain. You know, what we're going through today um, is is not even near what you went through But if we can take those words and those thoughts that you've shared with us, that all of this is for his glory and that we can live that out, oh, what a beautiful thing. So I encourage all of you uh, to live it out um, every day. And Pete, thank you for being such a great example. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for men like Pete, men like Rocky, uh, mentors who pour into all of us some through writing, some through speaking. But Lord, you have given them talents and gifts that they could have chosen not to pass down, but they're passing them down. They're living their lives out as as Pete has shared. And I thank you. We all thank you. So Lord, guide us as we leave this call. In your precious name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Amen, guys. Love being with you. Thanks for the honor of speaking.